Well, as Abraham was returning from one battle, which we called the Dead Sea War, he was soon faced with another battle. The difference, however, was that this second battle was not going to be a physical battle as the first one had been, you know, the battle between the five kings and the four kings. This second battle was going to be spiritual. Abraham was going to encounter a very enticing temptation dangled before him by the king of Sodom. Yet God, in his infinite care and concern for Abraham, sovereignly orchestrated the circumstances so that prior to Abraham's encounter with the king of Sodom, Abraham first met with the king of Salem. Abraham's audience with the very special, very mysterious, and very godly king of Salem, called, as I've already told you, Melchizedek, prepared him spiritually for his next encounter, his Uh, meeting with the king of Sodom. So in this lesson, which I have entitled Abraham and Two Kings, last week we looked at Abraham, or not last week, we had the German brass tour, but two weeks ago we looked at Abraham and Nine Kings. Today we're going to look at Abraham and Two Kings. We're going to cover three um, subdivisions. First of all, we're going to look at Abraham or not Abraham, the approach of the king of Sodom, because first of all, he comes out to meet Abraham. But before he actually gets to Abraham, Abraham has an audience with the king of Salem. And then third of all, we'll look at the audience with the king of Sodom. So our three subdivisions are the approach of the king of Sodom, audience with the king of Salem, and then the audience with the king of Sodom. So let's look first of all at verse 17. It's the only verse that tells us about the approach of the king of Sodom. Verse 17 of chapter 14, it says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, this is Abraham, after his return from the slaughter of Keterlamer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. Abraham, if you remember, and a little bit of a review here, Abraham had just launched and won a great surprise attack against a very formidable foe. And he had done so with merely a few hundred men, 318 of his own trained men. The miraculous result was that the tremendous invading force under King Ketelamer had been scattered and humiliated. And they fled for their very lives with no benefit of spoil whatsoever, meaning no, no people that they, they had had a lot of people taken captive from all their conquests in Canaan. But now as they were running from Abraham and his small little force, they had absolutely no benefit of spoil either in people or in possessions to show for their long campaign of warfare, which prior to Abraham entering into the scene had been one wave of victory after another. So Abraham had become a hero to the people of Canaan. He had shown unnatural courage against very impossible odds. And he had saved literally thousands of Canaanites from not only the embarrassment and tyranny of defeat, but also from enslavement in the east to the kings of the east. 
Ketalamer, and the other three kings. So in verse 17 here, we read of the approach of the king of Sodom, probably representing the five kings of the valley of Siddim. He comes out to meet Abraham. Now, if you remember, the last time that we saw this king was back in Genesis 14, verse 10. And there it had not been such a pretty scene. Remember, he had not only been terribly defeated by his enemies, but what had he fallen into? The slime pits, exactly. He had either fallen into them or hidden in them, uh, the slime pits of the Valley of Siddim. And so he, the last time we saw him, he was covered with all this nasty asphalt kind of slime. But he had somehow or another escaped death, and most likely he had then returned to Sodom to find that it was totally looted of all its citizens and possessions. So he was a poor king, a very poor king, without any kingdom riches at all. Everything in his city had been taken. He was a poor king without any kingdom possessions, but he was no king at all without any kingdom citizens without any people in the city. So we can imagine how ecstatic he must have been when he heard that how Abram the Hebrew, verse 13, remember he was called Abram the Hebrew, how he had uttered, utterly defeated Ketalamer, you know, his own hated enemy, and now was returning to Canaan with all the rescued citizens, not only of Sodom, but also of Gomorrah, and also all of the stolen goods from Sodom and the other conquered cities of Canaan. The king of Sodom had prob- probably also learned that Abraham was a friendly neighbor, and therefore what he decided to do was go out and meet him and see if he could not somehow or another recover the citizens of Sodom by bargaining with Abraham regarding the possessions you know, all the spoil. Because at this point, Abraham had everything. He had all the people who he had released, including his nephew Lot, and he also had all the possessions, the the spoils of warfare that he had taken from Ketalamer. You see, with people, the king, the king of Sodom, could rebuild his kingdom, right? With people, he could rebuild his kingdom. And with people, he could also again rebuild his army, And then maybe his thinking, I don't know, I'm speculating, but maybe his thinking was that if he again had an army, perhaps one day he could attack Abraham and get back all their possessions as well. But the law law of war and conquest was certainly on Abraham's side. It was in his favor because it was the victor's right to keep all the spoils of warfare. And that includes both people and possessions. But the king of Sodom was going to approach Abraham with a proposal whereby he hoped that he could get back the citizens and leave Abraham with all the booty. You see, Abraham deserved to keep all of it, but the king of Sodom was going to try to work out this little deal. So the meeting with the king of Sodom was going to really be another test in God's school of faith for Abraham. It was going to be a test after the battle. Remember how we've talked about the fact that many times our greatest tests come when? After the victory or after the battle. How would Abraham respond to the temptation to simply return the people and keep all the goods? Would he keep the spoils of victory all for himself or would he share them 
with others? Or would he give them back to whomever they belonged? Furthermore, how would he respond to the worldly praise that he would receive from the king of Sodom and all the Canaanite people? Would he revel in it? Or would he give the glory and the honor to God? Would he boast over his own skills and his own wisdom and his own battle strategy and his abilities and having won the victory? Or would he acknowledge his total dependence on God? You often see this in uh, sports figures, don't you? You wonder if they're going to take all the glory for themselves or once in a while you'll hear of a Christian who gives the glory totally to God. And that is really refreshing when you hear that. So we can speculate on what Abraham might have done if he had first met with the king of Sodom. But we don't know for certain what he would have done. We do know, if you look at verses 22 and 23, go look ahead a minute, we do know that he had very wisely made a vow to the Lord even before he went to battle. That was very smart of Abraham. He vowed before God that he would not take any personal gain from his conquest, nor even as a reward. He did that before he even went to battle, that he would take no gain. And that vow, you see, properly prepared him for his meeting with temptation. We also know that there was a very significant intervention at this point in time. As I said before, God sovereignly worked out matters so that before the king of Sodom actually reached Abraham in the valley of Sheva, which is called the King's Dale, you see that at the end of verse 17, that valley was apparently somewhere near to Salem, which would become the future Jerusalem. Um, But anyway, before that king, king of Sodom, reached Abraham, another king suddenly appeared on the scene. And he was the king of Salem, called Melchizedek. And he is not only one of the most interesting and most intriguing characters in all of the word of God, but very likely he is the most mysterious. And you'll see what I'm talking about a little later in our lesson. So we turn next to... The second part of our outline, which is uh, Abraham's audience with the king of Salem. And for this, let's read verses 18 to 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. The king of Sodom represented what? The the world. He represented the world, the king of Sodom, and all of its fleshly temptations. Well, he was on his way to meet and uh, and honor Abraham with worldly honors. However, prior to his arrival, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, came forth to present Abraham with godly honor. One wanted to offer worldly honor, the other was going to offer godly honor. Godly honor did two things for Abraham. First of all, it provided him with physical needs. Secondly, it provided him with spiritual needs. So let's look, first of all, at the physical needs under provision of Melchizedek. You can see I shortened his name because otherwise I wouldn't have fit it in there. Melchiz. (laughs) Uh, in In the ancient days of Abraham, an army was essentially dependent for its food and drink 
on the people of the areas that they passed by. So in verse 18, we read that Melchizedek brought forth what? Bread and wine. This was physical refreshment for Abraham and probably for his um, soldiers as well. And we can imagine that it would been would have been greatly welcomed by he and his men because they would have been very weary and hungry from their long journey. If you remember, I showed you on this map, they had gone from Hebron all the way up to Dan, and that's where they had their surprise attack. Then they chased him 60 miles over past Damascus, and then they were on their way coming back down when they met um, Melchizedek near Hebron, I think Hebron is about 16 miles from Jerusalem, and they're apparently somewhere near Jerusalem at this point in time. So they'd had a long, long and weary journey. And so this bread and wine would be greatly appreciated. Now this is the first time that this combination of bread and wine is mentioned in the Scripture. And very interestingly, the bread and wine was brought to Abraham. Okay, now Abraham was the man through whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was going to come, correct? And it was brought to Abraham by Melchizedek, who in the very same verse where it speaks of the bread and wine, it tells us that Melchizedek was the priest of who? He's the priest of the Most High God. Well, if you put all of this together, it pictures for us the future redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ for mankind. Bread and wine are the two elements which are used in observance of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a required ordinance, along with baptism, of the church. And it is to remind us of the Lord's sacrifice on the cross when his body, symbolized by the bread, was broken uh, for our for our benefit, for our sins, and also his sinless blood, symbolized by the wine, was shed for the redemption of our sins. So the bread and the wine of Melchizedek, given to Abraham, through whom the Messiah would come, speak both of the refreshment and the redemption, refreshment and redemption of our Savior and great high priest, you see, because Melchizedek is a picture of the priesthood of Christ. So it speaks of the refreshment and redemption of our Savior, the Messiah, the promise to the woman, and our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, we'll talk more about the bread and wine a little later. Let's move on to uh, talk now about the priesthood. By the way, in this section, I guess you saw that on my outline, we're going to be covering the provision of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek, the proclamation of Melchizedek, the payment to Melchizedek, which I hate to call it a payment, but I wanted to stick with peas, but it's really a tithe. And also then we'll discuss the person of Melchizedek. So we move on now to the um, priesthood of Melchizedek. He is the very first... Oops, I was supposed to have that up there. Melchizedek is the very first priest... This is the first time you see the word priest. Remember I told you this chapter is unique because it has so many words for the first time. Um, this is the first time we see the word priest in all the word of God. He obviously, Melchizedek obviously had a very special, unique relationship with God because he is also the first individual to call God El Elyon, which means literally what? The Most High God. So you see it in English in your Bibles. But in Hebrew it would say El Elyon, there instead of the Most High God. 
Melchizedek, remember, it's also been stated that he is <clears throat> the king of Salem. What does Salem or Shalom mean in Hebrew? Peace. So Melchizedek is the king of peace. This is the first time the word peace appears in the Bible. Bread and wine, priest, peace, all these words for the very first time, and they have to do with Melchizedek. Furthermore, his name, Melchizedek, may actually have been a title instead of a name. We may not even know what his name was. This is really, I think, more of a title because what it means is king of righteousness. Now, don't you think that it's a little unusual that this king of righteousness and this king of, pre, of peace and this priest of the Most High God, El Elyon, <clears throat> would have names and titles like this in such a wicked place as Canaan? Very strange. The three verses that we just read, verses 18, 19, and 20, contain the only time that Melchizedek ever appeared on the scene of world history. This is it. This is all we are told about this man. Other, well, anyway, this is the only time he appeared on the scene. Let me say that. It's fascinating, therefore, to wonder about him and to ponder how it was that Abraham recognized him as God's priest. If this great individual was already in Canaan, and if he was Abraham's superior, which is demonstrated by the fact that he blessed Abraham. Abraham didn't bless him. He blessed Abraham. And in Hebrews 7, 7, I think it is, it tells us that the greater blesses the lesser. We also know that he's greater by the fact that Abraham presented the tithe to him. He did not present the tithe to Abraham. Uh, so if he's great greater than Abraham, and if he's already present in the land of Canaan, then why in the world didn't God just simply choose Melchizedek to establish the nation of Israel and be the man through whom the promised seed of the woman would come? I mean, that would have made it a lot easier than moving Abraham, a pagan, all the way from Ur of the Chaldees and having him delay in Haran and, you know, all that God had gone through to get Abraham over there. Why didn't he just use Melchizedek? It's amazing to find that 1,000 years later, from these three verses, no mention is made of Melchizedek for 1,000 years, and then suddenly, 1,000 years later, he pops up again in the Psalms. Psalm 110, verse 4. David, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, suddenly mentions Melchizedek in Psalm 110. And this is a psalm, by the way, which is known by the Jews and the Christians. All agree, Jews and Christians agree, that this is a psalm which speaks of the Messiah. It's called a messianic psalm. David spoke of the Lord, or Adonai, as a priest forever after the order of, and here comes Melchizedek's name. Hasn't been mentioned for a thousand years. And God, uh, David, speaking of the Lord, says he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So David was saying that the Messiah, the coming promised seed of the woman, was going to be a priest. But not after the order of Aaron or the Levitical priesthood. There, you know, there was a pre-Aaronic 
I mean, before Aaron, pre-Aaronic and a pre-Levitical priesthood. And this is proven by the fact that Melchizedek, who preceded both Aaron and the whole Levitical priesthood, was also a priest of God. Furthermore, the priesthood of Melchizedek and of the coming Messiah, the Savior, is superior to the Aaronic priesthood because it is forever. It is an eternal order. It says there in Psalm 10, 110.4, a priest forever, that the Messiah was going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So it's saying that the Melchizedekian priesthood is an eternal priesthood. Aaron's priesthood, you know, the Levitical priesthood, never transcended the confines of Israel. It was just a priesthood for Israel. The Levitical priests were the priests of Jehovah as the God of Israel. Melchizedek's priesthood, however, preceded Israel because Israel was going to come through Abraham, right? So it preceded Israel, and Melchizedek was said to be the priest of the Most High God, the possessor of all heaven and all earth. So his priesthood is speaking of Christ's priesthood, because Christ's priesthood extends beyond Israel, doesn't it? It extends to all men, all heaven and all earth, all men. Well, what's also interesting is that after David's one mention of Melchizedek, he is then not mentioned again in all of the scripture for another thousand years. And then suddenly, 2,000 years after his appearance before Abraham, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he may be, (laughs) made several very startling statements and claims about Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told in Hebrews 7 that Christ was made the high priest of God after the order, again, of Melchizedek. The Jewish people you know, to whom the book of Hebrews was written, were having a very difficult time understanding how Jesus Christ could be the high priest of God when he did not descend from Aaron or from the tribe of Levi. You know, where where did he come from? The tribe of Judah. So to them, to the Jewish people, the Hebrews, this disqualified Jesus from any claim to priesthood. However, the author of Hebrews points out that there was a priesthood which not only preceded the Levitical priesthood and Aaron, but was actually superior to that priesthood. And it was the priesthood represented by who? Melchizedek. And Christ was a priest after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And the Jews, you see, should have already known this because in Genesis 14, it says that Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, but they also should have known it if they had truly understood what David was saying 
about the Messiah. They said, yes, that is a messianic psalm. They should have understood Psalm 110.4 to to be speaking about the Messiah, that he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And see, Melchizedek preceded and therefore was superior to the Levitical priesthood. I hope you're following all this. It's rather confusing. But this meeting with Abraham and Melchizedek was no little thing here. This was very important. God, this shows you that the scripture was definitely written by God. I mean, you know, there he appears mysteriously. Then a thousand years later, we get one more little tidbit about him. And then a thousand years later in the church, we learn all this additional information about this man. But it was very important that he did come to Abraham Because otherwise, to the Jews, Jesus would be disqualified as a priest, as the high priest of God. Because they they would not have known that there was another priesthood before Levi and Aaron, if you're following me. Well, anyway, the priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to the Levitical priesthood because Abraham, think of this one now, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, right? And this means that the Levitical priesthood, which was still in Abraham, you see, in his loins, in his seed, was inferior to the order of Melchizedek. Because all those Levitical priests, including the first one, Aaron, were actually in Abraham paying tithes to who? To Melchizedek. And the lesser always tithes to the higher. God, and it actually tells you all this in Hebrews chapter 7. That's what it's talking about. God appointed Christ to be the great high priest for man after the order of Melchizedek. That's in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. So Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood. This is what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to his readers. Also, God made Christ's, man, uh, Christ's man's forerunner into heaven. He's, you know, he's the first fruit, the first one who entered into heaven. He is the high priest who paved the way for us into heaven. So Christ is man's high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. And it says that not only in Psalm 110, verse 4, but also in Hebrews 6.20. Now we might wonder, how could Melchizedek's priesthood be forever? Well, Hebrews chapter 7 answers this question. Because Melchizedek had no genealogy. There's nothing at all said about his origin or his parents or his forefathers in the book of Genesis, which is very unusual because, as we've already seen in our study of Genesis, genealogies of everybody were very, the Hebrews were meticulously kept. Well, even of the other ones, they were kept. We saw that in the study of the Table of Nations. So everybody, it was very important for them to have their genealogical record. And we know that to be in the um, Levitical priesthood, it was absolutely mandatory to be able to prove that your ancestors went back to Aaron. But Melchizedek preceded Aaron. Melchizedek's priesthood, therefore, was greater because... It came first. I'm giving you all the reasons why it was greater. It's also greater because it came first. By having no genealogy and no descendants, Melchizedek, as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, appears to be eternal. 
and neither is there any record of Melchizedek's death. As is also stated in uh, Hebrews 7.3, it says, oops, I should still be up here. It says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So his priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood because it had no established beginning and no end. The job of the Levitical priest began with who? Aaron. He was the first priest, high priest. And when did the job of the Levitical priesthood end? It began with Aaron. When did it end? Come on, you all know. On the day that Christ died on the cross and then the veil was rent from top to bottom and that was the end. There was no more. His was a once for all sacrifice. There was no more need for the Levitical priesthood. So it had a beginning and it had an end. The priesthood of Christ, however, which is after the order of Melchizedek, has had no beginning. Christ has no beginning. And it will have no end because Christ has no end because he is the eternal Son of God. And the the people who he ministers to as great high priest are also eternal. we We did have a beginning, but we will not have an end. All right, well, I know that's a little bit confusing, but it's really, really fascinating. Let's move on to the proclamation of Melchizedek, or we'll never get through our lesson. Verses 19 and 20, or at least the first part of 20. It says, And he blessed him, this is Melchizedek blessing Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. Here we read that Melchizedek blessed Abraham in verse 19. And then in verse 20, we actually read that Melchizedek blessed God, the Most High God. Now, the great reformer, I had his picture up here a minute ago, Martin Luther, thought of Melchizedek's words here as a sermon. We have to remember that there would literally have been thousands of unsaved Canaanites present when Melchizedek came forth to meet Abraham. All right? Those Canaanites would have been the former captives of Ketelamer, who had been set free by Abraham's rescue. Who else would have been there? Well, we would have had um, Mamre and Aner and Eshcol, the three Amorite brothers, and perhaps their servants would have been there. They had gone to battle with Abraham. And so there would have been a lot, and also Abraham's soldiers, the 318 soldiers would have been there. So there would have been literally thousands of people present. So Melchizedek was presenting a witness for the Most High God in the presence of all these people. He was proclaiming before all of them that it was Abraham's God who had delivered their enemies into Abraham's hands. And he spoke of God as El Elyon, the Most High God, and he proclaimed rightfully that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. The Canaanite gods, you see what he was doing? He was essentially telling them that that all your Canaanite gods had done nothing to save you. You know, he's speaking now to the Canaanites. They did nothing to save you. It was El Elyon, the Most High God, Abraham's God, and my God, who gave the victory to his faithful servant, Abraham, so that all of you might know that he is the true God. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. Why? Because he is the creator of heaven and earth. You can only possess it 
I mean, he could, he, the only one that could possess it would be the one who created it. So Luther speculated that Melchizedek may have spoken for quite some time to all these people. He suggested, uh, Luther suggested that Melchizedek may have besought the people to turn from their false gods and instead accept his God, who was likewise Abraham's God, because he was the one, El Elyon was the one who had saved them physically to demonstrate that he could also save them spiritually. And again through Abraham, you see? Because it would be through Abraham's seed that the one who could save them spiritually would come, the Messiah. So Melchizedek knew that the miraculous defeat of Ketelamur's army was a unique opportunity to witness for God, and he did not let that great opportunity pass him by. There he was, a preacher, not only a high priest and a king, but a prophet, preacher, all three in one preaching before the multitudes about the Most High God. He was giving a testimony to the Most High God before the freed prisoners, the returning army, and also any of the other Canaanites who might have come out to cheer Abraham. You know, go, how they do, they go out to cheer the victor. And so that's a challenge to us, too, to uh, imitate Melchizedek and use every opportunity that we might have to present uh, to others the salvation which is available in God through Jesus Christ. Okay, moving right along, let's go to the payment. The payment to Melchizedek, and this is in the last part of verse 20 where it says, And he gave him tithes of all. The godly honor which was shown to Abraham by Melchizedek by way of the physical refreshment of the bread and wine and also the blessing from Melchizedek so moved him that he gave Melchizedek one-tenth of everything. This is the first time again that the word tithe appears in the scripture. And most Bible commentators assume that Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek, and tithe, by the way, means ten, uh, that it consisted of one-tenth of all the spoils of his battle against Ketelamur. Although, you know, the scripture doesn't really say that. You know, most commentators say, well, he gave him one-tenth of all the booty that he had gained from his battle against Ketelamur. But the scripture really doesn't say that. What does it say? It says that Abraham gave him tithes of all, everything. So it may be that Abraham even gave Melchizedek a tenth of all that he himself possessed. Remember, he was a very wealthy man even before he got all this booty. So it may be he gave him a tenth of everything that he had, as well as a tenth of the battle spoils. Now, the word tithe comes from the Hebrew word for ten. And many people erroneously think that the tithe was limited to Israel under the law. However, this passage here in Genesis 14 demonstrates that the tithe came actually before Israel even, and of course before the law. So this is preceding the law, and we have a mention of the tithe. Also Jacob tithed. We'll see that in Genesis 28 one of these years. As a matter of fact, as we've already mentioned, the priesthood of God came both before the Levitical priesthood and before the law. There was a priesthood before the law. There was a tithe before the law. Abraham is really to be commended here for giving one-tenth of all that he possessed 
to the priest of the Most High God because he had no law that said he had to do this. He was just giving from the generosity of his heart. However, one-tenth is really just a beginning, you know, when it comes to giving to God. Neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament limits the tithe to 10%. That may be a shock to some of you, but it's true. A tithe of 10% is merely a good place to start. In Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, we actually discovered that the Jews paid both an annual tithe to the Lord and an additional tithe every third year, which was for the poor, and then they could even tithe the other 90% for a special feast offering every third year. So if you calculate that, they actually gave 23%. Furthermore, as we learn from the Lord's words to the Lord Jesus's words to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23, we find that uh, the Jews not only tithed in their money, but they tithed of everything, even down to their kitchen spices. You know, the um, Anise and mint and cumin, for example. They even tithed a tenth of that. And in the New Testament, just like the Old Testament, we are never limited to a tithe of 10%. The Apostle Paul exhorted the churches to to give, and he never once mentioned the tithe. Paul never mentioned a tithe. Instead, he spoke of a higher level of giving. The principle for giving, which mentions no percentage at all, can be found in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. You know what that says? It says, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. And who was it that the Lord Jesus commended? forgiving. Right. The widow who, even though she only gave two mites, yet she gave a hundred percent, didn't she? Because she gave all that she had. So that's sort of the principle for giving. All, really, all throughout the scripture is to give, uh, you know, when we're giving to the Lord, it's an act of worship is really what it is. And if we're seeing it that way, then we realize that, I mean, we should realize that we should give cheerfully and we should give bountifully and we should give ungrudgingly and we should give sacrificially. You know, it shouldn't just be that limit like a law type of thing, one-tenth. And we should give not expecting anything in return. You know, there is a very popular unbiblical teaching or a movement which treats giving more as a bribe. You know, well, I'll give so that God will give me back even more. You know, I'll give for God's blessings. We're not to give to God in order to get. We are to give as a means of worship. And for that reason, what are we to give? We are to give our best. Our best, our very best, which is really just our reasonable service. Now, so we've considered so far the provision of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek, the proclamation of Melchizedek, the payment to Melchizedek. Now, let's look at the person of Melchizedek. All right, this is the most interesting part. (laughs) So who is this mysterious person called Melchizedek? Which may, as I said, may not be a name, but may very likely be a title because, as I said, it means king of what? 
righteousness. How could a man with such a wonderful title have come to be the king of Salem, which was in a land settled by the very idolatrous and wicked descendants of Canaan? You know, why would they have made him their king? And why would pagan people put on their throne a righteous man who worshipped a different god from the one they worshipped? How also was he recognized by Abraham as God's priest? As far as we know, Abraham never saw this fellow before, but he knew, and he gave him a tithe. You know, how did he recognize him? How did Abraham know that Melchizedek was his superior? And how did he know to give a tithe to him for the Lord? Why does this individual appear on the scene with no explanation whatsoever and then disappear just as mysteriously? Why, 1,000 years later, does he suddenly get mentioned again by David in a psalm regarding who? The Messiah. Christ. Well, we know he's Christ. Why, after another thousand years, is he mentioned for a third time in the book of Hebrews in reference to the superior priesthood of Jesus Christ? So who exactly is or was this Melchizedek? Well, that question has plagued far greater minds than ours for many, many years. Some have actually proclaimed him to have been the patriarch Shem. Remember who Shem was? The son of Noah, through whom the messianic line continued. And if there were no gaps in the genealogy record, genealogical record of Genesis chapter 11, then Shem's life would have actually extended longer than Abraham's. You know, we always forget about these things, but he would have actually, Shem would have outlived Abraham. Amazing. The son of Noah would have outlived Abraham. And so it could, you know, feasibly, it could have been, he could have been Shem. Uh, However, there is a problem with that interpretation of Melchizedek being Shem because um, Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that Melchizedek was, quote, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Is any of that true for Shem? Who was his father? Mr. Noah, who was his mother, Mrs. Noah, who were his descendants. Well, we know we are given the whole bit. We know the day he, when he was born, we know the year he died, etc. So none of that is true for Shem. So disqualify him. Others have taught that Melchizedek was an angel or even another specially created being of some kind. However, the scripture does refer to him as a man. Hebrews 7, 4. And it may be a little strange to wonder why Abraham would tithe to an angel. Now, some have even tried to teach that he was an unfallen Adam from another planet. I mean, that's stretching it, I think, a little bit. Who came to earth to observe God's redemptive program with the race which stemmed from our own fallen Adam. And that one sounds a little bit like the uh, Mormons might teach. Well, the most popular opinion, and there's some really other weird things, because this guy is really mysterious, <laughs> so people come up with all kinds of things. Uh, the most popular opinion among the vast majority of conservative Bible scholars and teachers is that Melchizedek was merely a very godly man, divinely used 
to serve as a prophetic type or picture of the Lord Jesus. Like Melchizedek, Christ is also the king of righteousness, is he not? And is he not also the king of Salem, the king of peace? And like Melchizedek, Christ is both king and priest and prophet, even, because Melchizedek was preaching. And certainly in the offering of the bread and wine, we can see a picture of the Lord's future death on the cross. So in all these ways, Melchizedek foreshadowed the high priestly glory of Christ. In fact, the book of Hebrews adds the information, as I read a minute ago, that Melchizedek was, here's the words, without father, without mother, without descent, which means genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, and it says of him, abideth, he abideth a priest continually. That is said of Melchizedek. The general interpretation of this verse, Hebrews 7, 3, is that Melchizedek appeared on the scene suddenly and then disappeared just as quickly. No genealogy is recorded, so there is no record of who his parents were. There is no record of any children. Neither is there any record of his birth or any record of his death. And those who follow this interpretation say that this was there was purposely no record of his genealogy or descent included for Melchizedek so that he would serve as a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God. So that's the most popular opinion, is that he, whoever this guy was, he was a godly man who was purposely used as a picture, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, I have a little bit of a problem with that because since we do believe in the verbal inspiration of the scripture, we are left to wonder why Hebrews 7.3, which I have up here, why it didn't just clearly come out and say that Melchizedek was without a record of father, without a record of mother, without a record of descent, or why didn't the inspired author of the book of Hebrews simply write instead that Melchizedek had neither a record of the beginning of his days or a record of his death. I mean, that would have made it very clear for us to understand. And why does the Hebrews passage go on to state that Melchizedek was made like unto the Son of God? And why does it say that he remains a priest forever? You know, if you take these words literally, as they are stated, all of this is rather mysterious. Well, since there is no definite answer for these questions, unless, there, unless Melchizedek was not merely a type or a picture of the Lord Jesus, but was, in fact, the Lord Jesus himself in a pre-incarnate appearance. After all, Christ is both the king of righteousness and the king of peace, the king of Salem. Also, he is the one who alone united righteousness and peace by his work on the cross because it was there that mercy and truth met together and righteousness and peace did what? Kissed one another. He is the only one 
about whom the words of Hebrews 7.3 could literally be true. You know, if you're going to take the scripture literally, that he's the only one about whom this could be true because he is eternal God. And so therefore he was without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And he alone abideth a priest continually. Christ is uniquely also both king and priest. There was no other king in the Old Testament who could also function as a priest. And there was no priest who could also function as a king. But the main problem with this argument that Melchizedek perhaps was the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the main problem, at least that opponents point out, is that Hebrews 7, 3 says that he was made like unto the Son of God. Now, why would it say like unto if he was the Son of God? See, so there's a little problem there. Well, a counterpoint to that argument is found in Daniel 3.25, where it tells us that there was a fourth person in the fiery furnace. They don't show him in this picture. But there was a fourth person in the fiery furnace, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he was declared to be like the Son of God. And we know that he was, in fact, the Son of God. He, it was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, perhaps these uh, such Christophanies or such appearances of Christ before he was born in Bethlehem, perhaps these Christophanies of the Old Testament used the term like unto to speak of the Lord Jesus prior to the time when he took upon himself uh, human flesh, a human body, um, because in those appearances he appeared like unto how he would appear when he was incarnated at Bethlehem, when he took on a human body. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> he appeared like he would for 33 years on earth in a human body. So he was like unto the Son of God as men would know him. Now, another objection. Are you following this? Oh, thank you. You're so smart. You're good students. <laughs> now, another objection to Melchizedek being the pre-incarnate Christ is that Hebrews 7, 4 states that he was a man. All right? And this would not have been true for Christ prior to his Bethlehem birth because he didn't become a man until he was born in Bethlehem. Yet, a counterpoint to that argument is that there are other cases in the scripture where the appearance of Christ before his incarnation was described as being that of a man. For example, it tells us in Genesis 18.2 that Abraham lifted up his eyes and beheld three men standing by him. However, what did he do? He recognized one of them. How did he recognize him? Hmm. Well, we don't know, but he ran to one of them and bowed himself before him and called him my Lord. And that would have been very inappropriate if indeed those were really just men. Well, we know that they weren't. We know that one indeed, the one to whom Abraham said my Lord, was indeed the Lord. And yet he was described as a man. 
he appeared as a man. The other two were angels, and it's also said that they appeared as men. When Abraham looked up, he saw three men. Now, since we've already learned in our Genesis study that the Lord has appeared unto Abraham at least two times prior to this meeting with Melchizedek, You know, initially it said the Lord appeared unto Abraham when he was still in Ur of the Chaldees. And uh, then again he appeared in um, Genesis 12, 7 unto Abraham. So this could explain Abraham's immediate recognition of Melchizedek. And, you know, if he was the the pre-incarnate Lord who had appeared to him already, he would understand that he was his superior and he would give him tithes. This would explain why he would receive his blessings and why he would pay him tithes. And it would also be perfectly fitting for the pre-incarnate Christ to bring forth bread and wine because they are the symbols of the body and blood he would offer on the cross of Calvary and the symbols that he would later himself present to the church as reminders of his redemptive work for man's sin. A pre-incarnate appearance of Christ as Melchizedek, king of righteousness, would also help explain his other title, king of Salem. Christ will one day bring peace to the world when he literally rules the world from the throne of what? Jerusalem, the same place as Salem. He will rule the world, the universe, during the millennial kingdom, and even in the eternal and the new heavens and the new earth, he will reign from Jerusalem. So he is the king of Salem. In fact, if Christ was in fact Melchizedek, it would also eliminate the problem regarding how and why a righteous king and priest of the Most High God would be ruling over a pagan people. See, he really wouldn't have been ruling. He would have just appeared suddenly before Abraham and then gone. You see what I'm saying? All right. On the other hand, here we go back again, there is a rather significant problem with Melchizedek being the pre-incarnate Christ. After I've said all that, and then I say this. In Hebrews 7.11 and also 7.15, we are told that another priest, speaking of Christ himself, would arise after the order of Melchizedek. And it says, after the similitude of Melchizedek. So how could Christ be after the order of himself? So there's a problem with that. Perhaps there is an answer to that problem. Perhaps there isn't. So I'm going to leave you wondering. (laughs) You can see why Melchizedek remains one of the most mysterious figures in all of the scripture. The very most that we can say about him with assurance is that he is definitely at least a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, his abrupt appearance before Abraham not only forestalled Abraham's uh, meeting with the king of Sodom, but it encouraged and it strengthened Abraham for the test with worldly temptation, which was presented to him next by Berah the king of Sodom. So let's look at that, verses 21 to 24. It says, And the king of Sodom said, See, all of a sudden, the king of Salem is gone. Boof. And here we go. And the king of Sodom is here, and he says unto Abraham, Give me the persons 
and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Anner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion." So Melchizedek disappeared from the narrative just as suddenly as he had appeared. No more is said about him, as we've already mentioned, for another thousand years. Well, verse 21 tells us that the king of Sodom, who had originally gone out back in 17 to meet with Abraham, now arrives before the patriarch and says to him, what? Give me the persons... And take the goods to thyself. It's interesting, you know, to compare the king of Sodom with the king of Salem. Compare those two guys. You'll be doing that in your homework. But notice what the king of Sodom's first thoughts were on. What were his first words? Give me. Notice that? Give me. First words. What, in contrast, what were the first words of the king of Salem? Melchizedek. Blessed be. What a difference. Give me, blessed be. So you see there's a great contrast. Now the name of the king of Sodom was Bera, B-E-R-A. We learned that back in verse 2. Bera means gift in Hebrew. And he was the king over Sodom. What does Sodom mean? Anybody know? I didn't know either before this. Sodom means burning, burning. Now, we've already mentioned how Sodom is a picture of the world. So Bera, king, uh, Sodom's king, also represents for us the world system, you know, with its appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. With its gifts, the world seductively bargains for souls, right? For our allegiance to the world. But beware of accepting such gifts from the world because Sodom means burning. You see, the gifts of this world may not only eventually burn you, but they themselves will one day be completely burned up. And Lot, you know, found out the truth of both of those statements. Not only did he get burned, but all that he owned got burned. Melchizedek had offered Abraham what? Bread and wine, which gave refreshment and which symbolically stood for redemption. In contrast, Bera really didn't offer Abraham anything. By the rules of warfare, as we had said in our introduction, Abraham had the right to all of the citizens of Sodom already the ones he had rescued, as well as all the spoils that he had taken in his conquest over uh, Ketelamer. So really, the king of Sodom was coming to take. He wasn't coming to give anything. But who was the real challenger behind this offer, do you suppose? Satan. No doubt, Satan had heard Abraham make his vow to the Lord. If you look ahead at verses 22 and 23, you see, well, we've already read those, that he had made a vow to the Lord before he even went to battle. And um, therefore, uh, and he had vowed, remember, that he wouldn't take anything as uh, for personal gain or even for a reward, not even a thread or a shoe latchet. You know what a shoe latchet is? Shoelace. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's the old way of saying shoelace. He wouldn't take anything. Abraham wanted to make it clear that he did not go to battle for personal gain. And he wanted others to know that whatever he may have had by way of wealth and blessings in this world was not due to the king of Sodom, but was due to the possessor of heaven and earth. Satan, you see, would have desired for Abraham to break his vow with God, and therefore he sent the king of Sodom to make the offer of souls for possessions. We could say he was offering people for possessions, or or saints. For, no, I forget the other way. I, I can't remember that. But anyway, people for possessions. As the king, you see, Barah had both the position and the authority to make this offer legitimate. And that would increase the temptation to keep these things. I mean, he's getting offered this from the very king himself, the king of Sodom. And Sodom was probably the leading city-state over all five of those city-states in the Valley of Siddim. Furthermore, this was a huge temptation because it involved all the riches of Sodom. And Sodom had been a very wealthy city. You know, offering just a trivial amount would have been far easier for Abraham to turn down. But the goods from an entire city made an awesome temptation. And you might wonder, or we might wonder, if Lot was standing nearby. I'm sure he was. Uh, And heard this offer from the king of Sodom. And if so... We can imagine how his covetous heart would have responded. I mean, he had originally moved into Sodom. Why? So that he could gain from its wealth and from all of its advantages. And now his uncle, who had settled for merely that rugged hill country near Hebron, was being offered the entire city. I mean, everything. All it possessed. Less the problem of the people. I mean, who could beat that deal? Get all the goods of the city and you don't have to worry about the people. uh, The king would take the people. So to the carnal man, which is what Lot was, and also to the natural, unsaved man, this looked like a great bargain. Uh, The thinking of the natural and carnal man would be, well, that the spoils of the victory were deserved. I mean, after all, Abraham had risked his life to go to battle to rescue the people that were uh, taken captive by Ketelamer. So the least they could do was reward him with all their goods, which they would have lost anyway, and were really his anyway by way of the law of conquest and victory. So so many people would say that Abraham deserved to keep the reward. Not only had he earned it, but he was now officially being offered it by the king of uh, Sodom. However, Abraham had been fortified and he had been um, strengthened by his godly encounter with the king of, of Salem. And he had been reminded through Melchizedek's benediction that God was responsible for bringing about the victory. So Abraham saw the situation totally different from the carnal man and the natural man. He saw the situation with the eyes of the spiritual man. He was not duped by ungodly logic and reasoning. He saw things the right way. He saw the danger behind that temptation. He had discernment regarding what gifts to accept, bread and wine, and what gifts not to accept, 
the spoils of the warfare. He had discernment regarding what honors to accept the blessing from the priest of the Most High God and what honors not to accept the worldly acclaim of the king of Sodom. Abraham realized the snare in Bera's offer. He saw that the Sodomite king would have a claim on him if he did accept his offer. If Abraham tried to witness to others, you know, in the future, that it was his faith in God which had brought to him his great blessings, what could Bera do? He could counteract that testimony for God by reminding everyone that he was the one who had enriched Abraham, not some God whom no one could see. So Abraham, fortified and reminded by his meeting with Melchizedek, wisely proclaimed that he would have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with Bera's offer. He was more concerned about making sure that God got the glory than that he got the goods very important principle. Also, if Abraham had taken the spoil, what in the world do you think the Sodomite citizens would think of him? I mean, would they think of him as their benevolent deliverer who had risked his life to set them free? Or would they think of him as being selfish and greedy? Would they not blame him for making them poor? and for causing them to start all over again with nothing. I mean, even though these things were his by right of law and con- uh, the law of war and conquest, what would they really think? This is what they would really think. You know, it would have been similar to a situation of rescuing someone who had been taken hostage and robbed of everything. You know, you go to that person and, and, and you, uh, you rescue them, but then you keep everything that the robber had taken. That's what it would be equivalent to. According to the law, you see, Abraham had every right to keep all of the spoils. However, morally, it would have been wrong for him to have kept them for himself. There are many things in this world which are legal as far as our justice system and our court system is concerned. And yet, they are morally wrong as far as the word of God and the will of God are concerned, right? I mean, nobody's going to be slapped in prison for committing adultery. It's legal, but is it morally right? No. So there were clearly snares in this temptation. And as is true with all temptations, uh, the offers of the world may appear innocent enough and good on the surface, but there is bait in the hook. Far too many Christians as well as institutions have learned the hard way that they have weakened their own personal testimony by accepting the applause and the praise and the gifts and the acclaims of the world. You know, it's very difficult to be both a dedicated servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and a celebrity in the world at the same time. It's difficult to get the acclaim of the world and the acclaim of the godly at the same time. But Abraham passed this temptation with an A+. He did not even toy with the idea of Bera's proposal. He immediately gave a very strong refusal, one which would not even lead Bera to think that he could present a counter proposal. He said, you know, I've made this vow to the... Notice how he picked up on um, Melchizedek's title for God? 
Why? He said, I have made a vow to the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. So we see the influence of Melchizedek on him. In other words, he's saying, well, why do I need your goods when I have the, 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 a God who is the possessor of the heaven and the earth? I mean, he'll provide for me. I don't need a little bit of spoils from this one city. Big deal. So he says, I'm not going to take even a shoe latchet because um, you would say I've made Abraham rich. So he didn't reply with timidity at all. I mean, he he was bold. He didn't even leave the door open a crack so that Barak could get a toehold in there. He was bold, and he slammed that door shut completely. Evil must be shut out with force. Completely. In his answer to Barak, we learn that Abraham had already thought about the possibility of such a temptation after the battle after the victory just as he had wisely prepared and trained his men for battle before the war he also was very wise in that he had prepared himself ahead of time for what he might encounter after the battle with temptation and how had he prepared himself by making purposing in his heart making a vow to the lord what he would do with the spoils of warfare. You know, that's a good lesson for us because we too need to vow in our hearts, we need to purpose in our hearts to refuse temptation even before it comes. That's why you should teach your young people what to do, you know, to, to determine in their hearts and minds what they would do if they get in such a situation where somebody is offering them some kind of drug or alcohol or what they would do if um, they're in a situation with a member of the opposite sex, etc. They need to understand, purpose in their heart and mind what they're going to do ahead of time so that uh, they know how they'll deal and we'll know how we'll deal with various situations which may confront us suddenly and may tempt us to compromise with evil. You see, that way, if we do that ahead of time, then um, when the temptation itself is suddenly before us, we're not going to be caught off guard without a plan of response and a plan of action. So the best way to resist temptation is to be in God's Word and to have His Word hidden where? In our heart, that we might not sin against him. So that when the temptation tests come our way, we, we won't fall prey to them. We won't be tossed about wondering what we should do and what's right and what's wrong and, and not know what to do and, and perhaps do the wrong thing. Also, the appearance of Melchizedek immediately prior to Abraham's meeting with the king of Sodom teaches us the great truth that God will meet our needs just at the point when we need them. And this is true in both the physical and in the spiritual sense. Melchizedek helped in strengthening Abraham spiritually, not only physically, but spiritually for the meeting that he had afterward with the king of Sodom. Even though Abraham, you know, had prepared his mind and heart ahead of time uh, with his vow to the Lord, yet you have to admit that he got extra strengthening from Melchizedek. And um, that gave him added boldness and made his victory over temptation even more sure and more honorable. Abraham had learned also from his experience down in Egypt what can happen when a person is enriched by the world. Remember when the Pharaoh gave him much increased goods? Those goods became a problem. And he had strife with Lot. 
And that's when Lot separated from him. And that's why he had to go to war, is because Lot had separated from him and it was carried off as a captive. So Abraham had learned from his experience in Egypt that you should not take gifts from the Lord. So this time, Abraham was victorious over the world, over his flesh, and over the devil, and he gets an A+. Well, the last little bit, verse 24, you can read for yourself, and it's also in the notes. It's about Abraham making provision for his own men. They were not going to be... um, they didn't take a vow, and they would not, he would not help hold them to his own convictions. They could take from, they deserved some of the spoils from the war. And so he made allowance for them, and you can uh, study about that on your own. Thank you for your patience. Let's close in a word of prayer.